0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world.
1: Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground and around the world, exploring the events and meaning of the invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, temporarily standing in for your host, Anne Levine. This is the second of two conversations with Rihor Nishnikau from Finland. A few parts of the first interview will be repeated today as we further explore the outlook on the Ukrainian war from the perspective of Northern Europe. Rihor Nishnikau spoke to me at length about Russia. As a political scientist living in Russia's directly neighboring country, He is uniquely qualified to discuss Moscow's approach to international relations and to the issue of security and how their idea of it has contributed to the invasion of Ukraine. Rihor also described lessons learned by the smaller countries in their own search for security and their place in the world. Rihar Nishnikau is with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, an independent research institute, which is funded by the Finnish parliament. The institute includes around 50 researchers who address Finnish foreign policy to advise the Finnish government, the European Union, and to provide public information for debate. Rihar's areas of expertise are in the area of Russian foreign policy and countries in post-Soviet Europe and the European Union, I called Rehor a few days after Finland became part of NATO on April 4th. In the first interview, I asked him how the effects of joining NATO were felt when it happened, and he explained that the moment was undramatic, since during the past year it had already come to be assumed that this was bound to happen. The real dramatic shift that was felt in Finnish society and politics occurred in February of 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine.
0: The Russian invasion was this tipping point when everybody felt somewhat shocked and maybe somewhat bizarre and Finnish public and decision makers just changed their attitudes towards NATO. Basically, in a matter of days, Finnish society in particular felt really overwhelmed. They really realized that the Finnish status of neutrality and its special relationship with Russia did not offer any security. And they definitely felt very much as Ukrainians because of historical trauma of Soviet Union attacking Finland in 1939. So the Finnish public just changed its mind and became favorable of joining NATO overwhelmingly. And the Finnish politicians basically agreed that the Russian threat needs a new response to which NATO and its collective security provisions were needed.
1: Can you just very briefly describe what happened in the 20th century between Finland and Russia?
0: What Russia has been doing to Ukraine right now resembles exactly what Russia was doing to Finland in 1930s. Russia came up with somewhat similar demands to Finland first of all. So before Soviet Union attacked and invaded Finland in 1939, Stalin gave a number of ultimatums. So Russia really tried to interfere in domestic as well as foreign security politics of Finland. And when Finland rejected, Soviet Union tried to simply occupy the territory of Finland and overthrow the government. And to save the country, Finnish Politicians had to make very severe compromises, so they had to sign a number of treaties, which were also somewhat humiliating to Helsinki. So everybody lived under this trauma, and when these things happened to Ukraine, things felt like it's a déjà vu. This happened to us in the 1930s
1: you published an analysis with eight other authors from the institute called multilateral cooperation in an era of strategic competition options for influence for finland and european union and my understanding was that the goal was to think about how finland can possibly influence international cooperation
0: yes for a long time finland was positioning itself as a neutral power which actually tried to be some kind of an intermediary to build cooperation in bigger platform using this so-called Helsinki spirit in 1975 about this new terms of cooperation in Europe, and it for a long time was basing its policy on that. But right now, we are in a transformative times when we see that there are really big changes and Russia's war of aggression will have massive global ramifications. And for Finland, this is kind of a wake-up call, which forces it to also change its approach. For Finland, the major goal right now is to strengthen the existing formal institutions and international rules. So, in this respect, Finland basically understands that the UN system, which is having a lot of problems, still is the major response to global challenges
1: the United Nations.
0: Exactly, and Finland is trying to look for different channels and ways and trust building measures which can secure peace and prosperity in the future. Finland has seen itself as some kind of a cradle of the spirit of cooperation between different worlds, between the East and the West. The problem is that the United States really tried to be too imposing, which actually made countries like Russia very disgruntled and made them feel cheated and also made many in Europe unhappy. And this also coupled with the rise of new powers in the world, primarily China. And this only led to the rise of kind of a zero-sum game thinking. So this definitely created a lot of misbalances in the world. And that's where we are right now. So for Finland. The point is, how can we reverse this to avoid bigger troubles? And how it can be a win-win situation for all of us? How can we avoid the clash between Washington and Beijing and what's going to be the role for Europe and for the Nordics in this? So that we don't actually start replicating the behavior of Moscow and have the same approach. This is the major fear and probably the major driver of the Finnish and Nordic thinking to global problems.
1: In this published document, you wrote the chapter on Russia. Maybe you can help us understand a little bit what Russia is saying about Ukraine. You wrote that Russia does see international cooperation as something that it strives for, that it sees it as something important, but the way it approaches it has inherent contradictions in it. How do they see multilateralism?
0: The major difference from our understanding, is that Russia sees multilateralism as basically a club of great powers. Russia really thinks of multilateralism as great power, cooperation. The world is the world of the strong, and the strongest decide. And in Russia's view, basically, these strong ones are, are obviously the United States, Russia, China, countries that decide on the global rules and also on the future of the smaller countries, so that, for instance, countries like Ukraine cannot decide what their future is about. Its future is decided by others, mainly Russia. And this is the perspective of Moscow. It's the world where power rules.
1: Rule by the strong.
0: Exactly. It's basically anarchical. It's really a food chain. And in this respect, the role of multilateralism, in their view, is actually to lower this state of anarchy. At least that you come together to decide on certain aspects of how this system should function. And to avoid problems, you have always to um, agree that the only way to function is that, you know, you don't really step on feet of other strong countries. So that's how you actually avoid massive conflicts and massive crises in this system. So Washington should respect what is Russia's interest, and Russia would respect what is the Washington's interest in, in return. So it's a very 19th century, pre-20th century, well, let's say, thinking.
1: What I read in, in your publication was this description of how Russia sees international relations as regional.
0: Yes, and actually we can compare it to, to the United States because many in Russia do feel offended by US criticism just for a reason that they say, well, but you behave the same way and that your perspective is no different. For instance, the Monroe Doctrine, you know, that you always treated Latin America as your sphere of influence. And that's why Russians are saying that today we're doing absolutely the same thing. We actually ask you one simple thing. Don't interfere in what we consider to be our vital sphere of national interests, like this zone which is comprised of these former Soviet Union countries, like Ukraine. Because if we look at how they define the region, They consider them as uh, first a resource for the security and also economic, but also as a trench where any potential aggression against us will be stopped. So it's a very colonial or neo-colonial approach. And Russia also envisions the world from its own experience. They think that this is how we behave. So probably the Americans, the Chinese have the same thinking. So This makes it natural to imagine the world as a cooperation of these different regional orders led by different great powers, which means that the buffer zones, for instance, countries of Eastern Europe, which Russia would claim historically belong to either Russia or to Europe, their future should be decided by joint agreement between great powers. So that, let's say, Biden and Putin will meet, have a big summit, and then say that, well, we, for instance, denuclearize Eastern Europe, or we remove the warheads from Turkey. Something that historically has been done for a long time with Soviet and, uh, and and the U.S. leaders.
1: So that's why they are saying that they're not really fighting the Ukrainians in Ukraine. They're fighting NATO, another big power. The fact that there's actual real people living in Ukraine whose lives are being destroyed, that's not really the issue. The issue is that they're engaged in a struggle with with the other big power.
0: Exactly. And uh, I think this is really uh, what the current discourse of Moscow is about. And also uh, something that they really sell to Russian people. They say that this is not about Ukraine. This is about the United States waging a war on us. So this makes the whole war in Ukraine an existential issue. And they actually connected to the like thousand year history that Russia has been always under attack from the West, the Teutonic orders or Hitler. And now this is not an exception. For instance, we have recently seen the new Russian security doctrine and Moscow just directly speaks of itself as a civilization state with different values. And that means that this is kind of a, fortress civilization under a new attack which requires these particular measures that it's taken in Ukraine. But it also means that, again, the countries around Russia are not given any proper subjectivity and they basically, again, are approached from a very colonial perspective that we just take what
1: we want. It sees itself as the cultural core of its region too, right? So that's where you get this idea of the Russian world or this whole issue that they've brought up with language in Ukraine.
0: Exactly. It becomes crucial for Moscow because how would you distinguish yourself from others and underline the supremacy in the region? You would underline it from historical ties and common culture, which includes obviously religion. It includes language. So that's actually the cornerstone of Putin's own thinking. He says that Ukraine is ours because the Russian Orthodox Church, its cradle is in Kiev. That Russian language is widely used in in Ukraine or has been widely used in Ukraine. So that makes Ukraine part of the Russian world. And also it makes Ukraine an artificial country. Because if you use our language, if you use our religion, then basically you are part of us and the fact that you are independent sovereign country is just a historical mistake.
1: The religion actually came from Ukraine, not from Russia.
0: Exactly. Absolutely true. Basically, this is the point that many actually make, that Russia basically stole many of Ukrainian's own heritage and claimed that this is ours. So that's why Kyiv is mother of Russia, as Moscow claims. Basically, Russia was baptized, not Kyiv, which obviously is not true, and this is just stealing others' heritage.
1: From the Ukrainians, you hear, we have our own agenda. And that's not what you hear from this other point of view. And I can see how how Finland is very much in the same situation, right? It has the same issue of having a seat at the table, so to speak, having some agency.
0: I would say after Stalin's failure to occupy Finland, Moscow basically dropped this aspirations. In Moscow's view, what would be a major difference from today's Ukraine is Finland was able to secure... Sovereignty. And so, in this respect, in today's Russia's political and foreign policy thinking, Finland is not part of Russia's sphere of influence. But obviously, up until now, in Russia's thinking, Finland was not seen as a neutral country. Because after joining the EU, for Moscow, Finland was seen as not a neutral country, but actually part of US political alliance, even if it was not in NATO. And that when Russia was talking to Finland it was actually rather talking to Washington saying that well we know that you are part of this uh, American backyard so we respect you but when we talk to you we treat you as a part of the American backyard so this hierarchical thinking towards smaller countries obviously is always present in Moscow's eyes and that's why It's never ready to treat anyone equally whom Russia doesn't consider to be equal. Which means if you are not a great power, someone else decides on your behalf about what you should be doing politically, economically, or on foreign and defense policy. And that's why Russia is so obsessed about talking and having an equal say as Americans, as Beijing, or any other great power in their view.
1: So in a way, what you're saying is that Russia is following its own version of multilateralism, of of international relations. It's just based on an approach, which you identified as colonialism, really. When I asked about the kind of similarity between Ukraine and Finland, I was thinking about these goals that you've set forth to build cooperation and to build formal institutions that support this instead of just having the big powers run the scene and that one of the goals of that is to protect the security and the agency of the smaller powers, which is where countries like Finland and Ukraine come in. Am I making sense by putting that together that way? Well, I think
0: yes. Uh, This is why it is so important to build up cooperation and actually build trust through cooperation to actually prevent countries like Russia to totally destabilize the international system and use this kind of a divide-and-rule policies where you just say, well, it's all about Ukraine, so when you will agree on our terms in Ukraine, bad things will end. No, because it will then move elsewhere and start doing the same things. And that's why Finland joins NATO and also intensifies its support and cooperation with Ukraine, because you really have to help the ones in need to also prevent such a crisis in the future. So this is, this is uh, probably the center stage of the Finnish approach.
1: You are listening to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground and from around the world, exploring the events and meaning of the current invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, temporarily standing in for your host, Anne Levine. We are hearing today from Rihar Nishnikau, a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, an independent Finnish policy research facility in Helsinki, Finland. As a political scientist from Russia's directly neighboring country, which also experienced a Russian invasion similar to Ukraine, he is able to explain from up close the war in Ukraine through Moscow's own colonial vision of world peace and security. A central theme of Finland's aspirations, according to Rihor, is an alternative type of multinationalism that relies less on power, but builds lawfulness, peace, and trust through cooperation in institutions like the United Nations. He sees this as a hope for smaller nations seeking freedom and respect. Just at the moment we're in right now, the United States is asserting its military power to support Ukraine, how do you see that fitting into this idea of developing you know, cooperation and at the same time really having to fight a war, which is the opposite of cooperation? Why wouldn't it just go into everybody getting more militarized and everybody trying to be stronger?
0: What you're saying is extremely important, and that's why it's really important to actually avoid Russia's victory in Ukraine. This is currently the Finnish thinking. For a simple reason that if you allow this, you would actually make others aware of benefits of having this zero-sum thinking. Basically opening the door to, let's say, the Chinese attack on Taiwan, hypothetically. And in this respect, what you have to do is, yes, build up your security. You need to increase your defense, but do it first in a very rule-based manner also in a way that doesn't undermine other values, such as, for instance, democracy and human rights, and using it as a kind of a synergetic effect to not only building trust between the countries, but also strengthening international institutions, but also underlying that the future and the stability of the global order lies on these eternal values based not on your power or your, uh, let's say, resources, but is rather built on the more longer-term benefits that come from value-based principles. So I think this is what Finland tries to do, and that's why it will try to use its membership in NATO as a tool of enhancing this. And also, when we talk, for instance, about Ukraine, you follow the same logic. You help Ukraine to survive the war, but at the same time, you do not neglect the institution building in the country. That you actually build up the democratic and human rights pillars, which would be the major point of resilience for the society and probably the basis for long-term prosperity for the whole country. So I think this is the logic. These are not separate things.
1: Wouldn't this imply that what the United States is doing in Ukraine is, in fact, supporting their liberation struggle? It's supporting Ukraine, that the United States is there really supporting a small power instead of fighting the big power of Russia by giving arms to Ukraine?
0: I I do think so. I think that the support comes to Ukraine's strife to decolonization, you know, to become an independent modern country outside of the Russian rule not vice versa, because obviously, if Ukrainian people were not ready to do it, nobody would be helping them. So uh, it's Ukrainian people's own desire to get the right to decide on their own future. I think this is the main point. And when Ukrainians will stop doing this, I think then the Western support would not really bring any meaning. As long as Ukraine is ready to fight, there will be support from the West. But this helps a bigger cause, which means that the value system should be based uh, not on some kind of a, a great power's uh, wishes.
1: So you're saying you essentially believe that what the United States is doing is supporting freedom, not using Ukraine as a tool to threaten Russia?
0: We might argue that by supporting a Ukrainian strive for freedom, you also undermine russia because russia is wasting so much resources both uh, military and economic that it undermines its power so these goals are intertwined but for me would the u.s do the same if ukrainians were not ready to fight well let's say if ukrainians stop fighting whether the u.s would for instance force its allies to increase the effort and my answer is no and this is the major reason, I think, the U.S., as well as basically Europe, would be happy to make a deal with Putin if Putin would have captured Kiev in three days as he planned. But as long as Ukrainians are against that, the West is ready to support it. So this is the major difference to, uh, to for instance, Afghanistan. And one final thought is that the U.S. is obviously not focused on Russia. The U.S foreign policy has reoriented itself to the Pacific. That's why, actually, it doesn't really want to waste that many resources on this war, but it has to. So here we are. I think one lesson we learned is that you can't actually approach global institutions and foreign affairs a zero-sum game if you're not a great power. Because if you're left alone, like Ukraine, we have to admit that Ukrainian foreign policy was always based on trying to sit on two chairs, that you actually pledge European integration, but at the same time you take money from Russia not to integrate to the European Union and vice versa. And it really backfired. So you really have to think twice, whether you want to sit on two chairs or you really have to commit to certain international rules, which obviously would imply that you commit and you have to follow them. But the benefit is uh, really that you don't face such threats. And I think this is the lesson to small and midpowers for decades to come.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the time you're giving. Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. To joy from Ludwig van Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, music selected by our guest in the spirit of multilateralism. Our thanks to our guest, Rehor Nishnikow. Senior Research Fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in the Russia, the EU, Eastern Neighborhood, and Eurasia Program. His area of expertise is in the European Union's Eastern Neighborhood, domestic and foreign policies in Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine. His research work can be found at the website of the Finnish Institute at fii.a.fi. His name is spelled R y h o r n i z h. N-I-K-A-U. That's R-Y-H-O-R-N-I-Z-H-N-I-K-A-U. To see a picture of Rehornishnikau and to hear the archive of our other shows, go to Ukraine242.com. I've been your host and producer this week, Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network. Thank you for listening and see you next week on Ukraine 242.